Hello everybody and welcome to the April edition of the DistilleryTours.Scot podcast, giving you the inside track on the whisky distilleries of Scotland and telling some of the stories about the people and the places that make Scotch whisky so special. My name's Richard Woodard and in this episode I spoke to Billy Walker of the Glenallachie Distillery on Speyside. Billy tells us about his 50 years working in Scotch whisky, explaining what drew him to buy Glenallachie in 2017 and how he has sought to fulfil the potential he saw in the distillery spirit. But it's not all about single malt. Billy also discusses blending, an unlikely sideline into rum, and how Scotch whisky has changed over the past five decades. If you'd like to find out more about the Glenallachie Distillery, their whisky and their tours, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on their listing. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Start your whisky journey with Caledonian McBrain, proud sponsors of distillery and whisky news podcasts. Visit calmac.co.uk for further information. Today we're lucky to be joined by one of the most well-known figures in the world of Scotch whisky, Billy Walker of Glenallachie Distillery on Speyside. In his long and distinguished career, Billy has been involved with some of the most famous names in Scotch, including Hiram Walker, Inver House, Burn Stewart Distillers and Brenriach Distillery. He led the takeover of Glenallachie in 2017, and since then, Billy and his team have worked to establish the distillery as one of the new stars of single malt whisky. Billy, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I guess my first question would be, why Glenallachie? What was it that really attracted you to the distillery in the first place? I suppose we were surprised that uh, the distillery became available in the first place. Um, it was something that came out of the blue, and uh, I had been approached by um, one of the Chivas, uh, the Chivas UKMD, Laurent Lacassagne, uh, who indicated that it might be available and might might it be of interest uh, to me and the team. Um, so yeah, I suppose the initial reaction was surprise, but it, it was a distillery that uh, absolutely fitted our at the template uh, within the kind of team that we had and and our thinking on where the next journey might be. It was a distillery that operated under the radar. It um, had been little exposed to the market. There had been one or two brands that had been released, but essentially it was a a distillery that had uh, not been allowed to express itself in the marketplace. And so essentially it was ideal for us. It was a blank canvas and, and we could do, you know, we could paint the pictures that we wanted to paint once we had done the groundwork uh, in understanding the uh, the depth of the inventory and what we had to work with. Sure, yeah, because very much in the past it was a blender's malt rather than a malt that was bottled on its own, as it were. I mean, I think, you know, you could say that about almost all the distilleries that, uh, with the exception perhaps of Glenlivet and Glenferrick, Morangy and one or two others, they were all uh, working uh, kind of workhorses for the blended industry, uh, and we'll come on to we'll come on to that topic in in, in more detail. Um, but yeah, look, um, it it fitted the bill perfect for, perfectly for us, um, and to get the opportunity to acquire a distillery 
um, at that time was, from my point of view, was fantastic. Uh, I think in today's climate, it might be much, much more difficult, A, to source one, and certainly B, to source one that had the range of inventory um, and the style of inventory that we were looking for. Um, so yeah, the, the, the timing was great. Um, we were just lucky. Sure, because you had just sort of finished with Ben Riach, hadn't you, yeah. at that point? So were you thinking that you'd get back into whiskey in this way quite as quickly as you did? was certainly determined to get back in the uh, the sale of the previous company had come as a bit of a surprise, um, certainly with a lot of disappointment because there were things that I believe there were things that we had remained unfinished um, with, the, with the previous facilities, particularly Glen Glasgow, where we had done an incredible amount of unseen um, work uh, on the side and with the inventory. And actually, I think over the next two or three years, you'll see a lot of that emerging. Um, so yeah, there were some disappointments there in unfinished business, and so the opportunity to to take ownership of uh, Glenallachy was uh, a surprise. It came quicker than we thought the opportunity might have come, but unquestionably, it came at the right time. Sure, sure. So, for somebody who's never been to Glenallachy, which actually includes me, how would you describe it? What kind of place is it? From a location point of view, um, it's very, very attractive site. It's in the lee of Ben Rennes and um, and the Conville kind of hill range, um, just tucked away off the main road. Um, so it's from a location point of view very attractive. Um, and from a planning point of view, while it's not the oldest of distilleries, it's one of the distilleries that was built during the the kind of um, late 60s, early 70s, um, where there was a, a big, big demand for um, blended whiskey and a lot of distilleries uh, were, were built. So it has the advantage of relatively modern thinking. Uh, it's a well-planned distillery. Um, it has great access to water. There's two wonderful reservoirs up in the hills, which uh, captures most of the water from uh, that side of Ben Rennes. Um Big distillery, it was 4.2 million litres, um, but that didn't really attract us. It, it it just told a story that it was capable of doing that. Our intention was always to, to bring it down to about 100,000 litres and operate it as a relatively craft boutique style uh, distillery operation. Sure. And of course, every distillery is different. Everyone's got its quirks and its peculiarities. I mean, what are the key characteristics of then Alaki for you? I mean, I think it's difficult to, to, to capture it in words. Um, this, the layout is, is, is very professional and beautifully engineered. The, I mean, all of our water supply is, is gravity-fed, so they were ahead of the game in terms of energy management uh, when, when, they, when they set it up. Uh, the stills are big. The, I mean, it's a big distillery, and we... Our decision to kind of reduce it to about 25% of working capacity um, has allowed us to do a lot of things, most specifically to move to long fermentation. So, you know, conventionally it probably operated somewhere between 15 to 60 hours fermentation, and we've moved that to about 140 to 180 hours, depending on the, the, the day of the week when the fermentation is set. 
that's that's quite a big change. So I'd imagine that has quite a big impact on flavour. It's got an impact on flavour, uh, on levels of flavour. It's probably got an impact on... I mean, what, what it allows us to do is to take the fermentation to full term, which means that at the, at the end of the actual fermentation process, there's a very benign, inert wash, and there's secondary kind of bacterial uh, um, transitions taking place, which we believe um, the good bacteria are delivering some... some uh, very, very welcome and attractive uh, flavour characteristics, probably particularly in a kind of estery type of uh, type of note. Um, but it, what it does also allows is that because the wash is so benign, when it goes to the wash still, it's actually a very easy distillation to control. But if we were to compare the new make spirit that was being produced at Glenallachy before you took over and, and the way it is now, I mean, I'm guessing you've done those comparisons. Is that quite a big difference in character between the two now? I think there's a difference in character, not only because of what we've done in terms of the, the, the fermentation time and, and the associated benefits from that, but uh, we also have tinkered around with the the cut, uh, the the alcoholic cut strength for the for the heart of the spirit. Um, I think we would expect and are expecting and seeing a more full-bodied, a more muscular spirit. Um, that's uh, it's all the character. It has similar characteristics, but uh, bolder in terms of things like orchard fruits, red berries, vanilla, toffee, orange zest, uh, kind of toasted biscuits. And definitely hints of round berries and even little hints of eucalyptus. So that's where we are with the new Phil Spirit just now. And we're kind of uh, four or five years into this development. And we are religiously following the development of the, the Spirit in various styles of, uh, of, uh, of cask. We're not, we're not disappointed. Good. Well, that's something. <laughs> but I mean, it, so yes, talk about the casks as well. So... Obviously, you came into the distillery. This was a, a malt, as you say, like most that was mainly destined for blends. And that can have quite an impact on the casks that are used on the inventory. What did you find and how did you go about maybe tweaking things and changing things? I mean, right from looking at the landscape and the kind of spread of inventory that we were acquiring, I mean, we... We, we did actively participate uh, during the, the acquisition process to ensure that the, the quality of the wood and the style of the wood that was could be made available to us was of the highest quality as we saw it. Um, but we also recognised that um, the journey we wanted to make for Glenallachy was that it would be um, a sherried-style whisky um, and so we could see that the, the challenge in terms of wood management was going to be significant, both in terms of getting the older, the, the more mature whiskies into the style of wood that we wanted to get into and to ensure that they were in the, the wood long enough to deliver the kind of personality and DNA we were looking for, while at the same time looking at the new fill and making sure that they were being engineered into similar styles of wood um, to make sure that the continuity of where we wanted to be was in place. Um, and in between, the, there is quite a lot of um, 
you know, scientific management of that, we have to make sure that we don't overexpose to too much sherry. Um, so, you know, we, we are, we're following the progress constantly and uh, and from the from the warehouse uh, operator's point of view probably far too religiously but you know we're five we're five years into the journey almost and in my opinion we are we have achieved 90 percent of the quality target that we had set ourselves out to do the next 10 percent is absolutely worth pursuing but it's a much more difficult uh, it's a much more difficult challenge or target to achieve, but we're on the case. Um, and as I have said on many occasions, our ultimate objective is to be the best distiller in the Speyside Glen. And that's a wee challenge. That's quite a big challenge. You've got a bit of competition there. Yeah, but you know, we're on the case. <laughs> and how much does your previous experience kind of influence and inform what you're doing at Glenallachy, you know, I'm thinking about Ben Rieck and Glendronach and, and so on. Do you, do you use some of the lessons from then now? Listen, we use all of these lessons and, you know, we were lucky enough when we acquired Ben Rieck, we were lucky enough to be in at the start of what was a, a remarkable change, the start of a remarkable change in people's perception of single malt. Up until that point, the, the, the market was dominated essentially by blended whiskey. And not that, I mean, blended whiskey continues to be a very important um, part of the whole kind of the whiskey landscape and will continue to grow, in my opinion, and more of that later. But when we acquired Ben Riech, we were bold and we did a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of quite clever wood management uh, in both Ben Riech and Glendronic and indeed Glenglassach. And we learned a lot from what we learned how, we learned, for example, what is the, what is the maximum, what is the best period of time to be in a, in a virgin oak cask, being a Spanish virgin or a French or an American. We learned about how long can they be in wine castle. A lot of that information is implanted in your mind. So you're making decisions um, you have the advantage that you've done it before and you know the good things and the bad things. So, you know, the challenge, Glenallachy was, at the start, it was a huge challenge to reformulate it into the kind of style that we wanted it to be. But we, we benefited hugely from what we learned in the past. And you could obviously see the potential in Glen Allachy before you made those changes there was something there that you knew you could work with I mean I, I knew Glen Allachy, um, from a historically from a blending experience and it wasn't a shy whiskey so we knew that when we set out in the journey that once we got uh, our teeth into the problem of understanding the kind of what we actually had acquired right across the range that we knew we knew what to do to a start the journey and how long it would be to get to where we want to be and as I say I think we're about 90% there now and we're on to the, the final stretch which will probably take as long to achieve as it did the first 90%. It's interesting you say not a shy spirit because I, I, I've read and I've seen sort of perception of Glen Allachy of based maybe on when the distillery was built that it was part of this kind of lighter movement because that's what the market wanted that's what the blenders wanted but you, you see a bit more to it than that yeah and i think um it's a kind of bland uh, definition of of what it was and, and and where it was but you know a lot of it uh, a lot of the the perception is 
when people experience, have experienced historically uh, what Malachi was about, would reflect what kind of wood it had been during the journey. And you know, I look quite often look out and see people releasing in the, in the kind of independent bottle settlement at Glalachy that's been perhaps in a third fill cask or a refill hogshead. And that nowhere reflects what Glenallachy can be if it is being allowed to season in top quality wood. So if we take all of these elements together, all of the, the changes you've made, the, the potential that was in Glenallachy from the beginning, for people who know the whiskey now, who've tasted the whiskies that you've already brought out, what differences might they see in, say, 10 or 15 years' time? It's a really, really good question. I think we can already see, we think we have introduced um, additional muscularity into the spirit. The kind of uh, the characteristics that I have kind of outlined earlier are probably painted bolder into into the spirit that we are looking at. We also have the advantage of uh, having made the changes that we have made to the fermentation processes and to the distillation cut. We have the advantage of controlling the, the wood management from day one and that is going to influence hugely where Glenallachy will be in uh, 10, 15 years time. And it will be, you know, we can then take ownership of the whole process that we have uh, we have taken it virtually from the field right through to the bottle. Now, when you bought Glenallachy, you didn't just buy Glenallachy. You obviously picked up McNair's blended malt and White Heather, the blend, which I guess a lot of people won't even have heard of, in, certainly in this country. Why did you buy them and how are the plans progressing for that? It's a good question, and you know, it's a question that I've been asked quite often. In fact, a really important part of the acquisition was that both White Heather and McNair's would be included, um, and for different reasons. White Heather, um, you are absolutely right. People may not be aware of White Heather, but you know, in the early days before Pernod acquired Chivas, and then almost on the back of it, uh, Ally Allied White Heather was their. Uh, was their premium blended whiskey. And if you'd been wandering Europe and South America and perhaps even North America 25 years ago, White Heather would have been a significant player in the blended whiskey market. The fact that, you know, suddenly Pernod had access to Shivers Regal and indeed the, some of the wonderful Ballantines expressions, it meant that White Heather was marginalised and put in the cupboard. So it was great that we were able to uh, get our hands on it because we had plans. And the plan revolved around the fact that although blended whiskey was being a little bit uh, um, in the shadow of a very resurgent single malt, we figured out that uh, we, we believe and still believe that um, blended whiskey is not dying and it will have a significant resurgence. But we had to be out of the the busy crowd, we we had to be 15 years and older and our plan was to launch it as a 21-year-old. Um, I mean, with huge amount of attention and care in terms of, the, of putting the, the blends together uh, and then to launch the 15-year-old. The 21-year-old has been spectacularly uh, successful and well-received and the 15-year-old has just been launched and uh, 
Well, we're very confident that uh, it's going to be on a on a really nice journey. And and McNair's, I mean, well, McNair's had a more uh, McNair's was more emotional for me because it was one when I was at uh, when I was at Hiram uh, Walker. Um, and a company that allowed me to do lots of things during the period I was there, one of which was to supervise one of the bottling lines, and McNair's was a product that regularly went down that line. So there was a kind of emotional connection to McNair's, but we could also see the opportunity for a kind of boutique house offering. So we knew we were going to introduce a, a, a blended, a peated blended malt under the McNair's Lumreek, and we were fascinated by how underexposed rums were. And so we are more than dipping our toe into the rum market just now, and that's being released under the McNair's banner. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, that's definitely not an area many people would associate you with. You know, the the the, the interesting thing about rum, it's not, so, it's not so different from Scotch whiskey in general. But in my opinion, it has been uh, it has been underexposed to the market in terms of boutique style of production and indeed boutique style of wood management. And we are heavily into this now. We've already launched the Panamanian editions, and there are one or two other things going to come in uh, onto the market shortly. But we're very confident that a lot of the stuff that we have done with uh, malt whiskey is easily translatable to rum. Interesting. Now, you mentioned the emotional connection with McNair's, and I guess going back into blending, because a lot of people will associate you with single malts, particularly with Benriac and so on. I guess that takes you back to the beginning, doesn't it? And Hiram Walker and 1972, was it, that you first yes, the industry? Uh-huh. So we're at 50 years now. Look, over 50 years, I mean, so much has changed. So much has changed in this industry, the the kind of the acquisition, the the mergers. The private ownership side of it has tended to be marginalised a little bit, but it has still got a a very important part to play in the overall spectrum of who the whisky industry is. But, you know, 50 years ago, single malt was a very, very small part of the whole whisky experience. You know, blended whisky was... uh, Hugely important, still hugely important. Um, the the world was a smaller place. The the consumer was, and probably I'm saying this unfairly, but today's consumer is a much more informed consumer. It's a much more curious, inquisitive, and maybe even challenging consumer. They they want to know everything about uh, what the brand is doing and what it's about. Um, that wasn't the case 50 years ago. But unquestionably, whiskey 50 years ago was the international premium drink of choice, as in my opinion it continues to so be. But it was driven by blend, continues to be driven by blend, but single malt unquestionably is a big player now and a growing player. Looking back to those very early days, do you have any sort of strong memories of, I don't know, your first day working in Scotch or the early months and years? Not really. Look, I was brought up in a, in a whiskey town that had Valentine's and J&B bottling. It had uh, Newton Brond, it had McGavigan's. It was a real, real whiskey town. So there was an inevitability that I would get involved in, in whiskey in some capacity. Um, the fact that I was able to, I was given the opportunity to work, to work in Hiram Walker and indeed given the opportunity to be involved in so many areas of business and to learn so much 
It's a fantastic company. And I'm sure it's still part of a fantastic company. But in these days, it's a fantastic company with fantastic brands like Ballantines and, uh, and Ambassador. You know, big, big sellers, but not really brands that you would see in the United Kingdom in a big way, but huge international presence. So it sounds as if whiskey was almost an inevitability for you, do you think? Well, look, I studied as a chemist at Glasgow University, so I was always going to try chemistry as part of a career, and I was in pharmaceutical research for about four or five years, listen, it was fun, but I was never going to win the Nobel Prize, that was for sure. Um, <laughs> so the opportunity to join Hiram uh, Walker's was so inviting that, uh, yeah, it was great. And it was the start of an incredibly interesting journey, and being with some amazingly different styles of companies and bumping into some very, very interesting people. I'm sure, yeah. And was there a particular role model that you kind of look back on now and think that person had a, a big impact, maybe maybe in whiskey terms, maybe more broadly? Look, there's lots of them, um, but I would say more importantly was the different styles of whiskey companies that I worked for that threw up and presented different styles of challenges. You know, with Hiram Walker, you're a comp- company that had huge international brand presence at uh, Inverhouse, which was an emerging company owned by Publica. You know, they were trying to get uh, Pinwinnie and Inverhouse Green played in MacArthur's uh, motoring in, in the blended whiskey world. And then I joined Burns Stewart, which was a very, very low-key player, but had ambition and was, and, and was very ambitious and to the point where we were able to buy the company. But these were all different styles of companies. And then the opportunity to take over the likes of Ben Riech and in particular um, Glendronach. I mean, these were I mean, just sensationally surprising, amazing opportunities. Get your hands onto the inventory and to deliver and create the kind of things that uh, were in your mind and that you thought could connect with, uh, with the modern consumer. And the kind of opportunity that maybe wouldn't arise today? Although, well, Glen Alec is not that far back Look, in the past, I, is it? I, so. think it's, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely on the money. I think it will be more difficult to, for private individuals like myself to access or acquire uh, a mature distillery with significant um, mature older inventory. I think that will be quite difficult. However, there's a lot of ambitious and clever young people who are involved in new startups. And where these journeys go, um, it'll be interesting to see how they cope and what might emerge from that. Uh, we'll see. But yeah, uh, your answer is it would be it would be difficult to today, even five years on from Glenallocky, it would be difficult to buy a Glenallocky today the, I think the, the the kind of entry price would be awfully high and a general reluctance on the part of people who own estate to actually sell it. And very different from 50 years ago when you started out. I mean, the industry has been through so many ups and downs in that time. Is it stronger now than it was 50 years ago or just different? Oh, I think unquestionably it's stronger. The The world is a different place. The, the kind of geo political, the geo-economical things that have happened over the last 20 years has seen, you know, the dynamism of the Asian markets, the breakup of the old USSR, um, regrettably 
there are problems at the moment, but the, the world has changed incredibly. People's disposable income is uh, is different. Uh, so you know, we we have access to markets today that you wouldn't have conceived possible um, fifty years ago. And through all of this, uh, I'm thinking particularly here of what you did with Ben Riek and Glenn Dronach and Glenn Glassoch, and now with Glenn Alecky. What's the most fun part of it? Oh, for me, the most fun part of it is uh, is the blending part of it and the actual creation of uh, of uh, of new releases, creating the core range, twisting things, and 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 I see that as a big part of where we are going forward. You will see new releases. You will see um, lots of work that we're doing, for example, in different types of virgin oak of different genus, of different provenance, of different, different levels of toasting and different levels of charring. There is so much that the, the the informed consumer can relate to now and it presents a terrific platform for companies and people like myself to actually go and explore these things. Just a couple more questions. Um, one, you mentioned about sort of young startups and people getting into whiskey and if anybody was listening to this and they're just starting out on their journey into scotch would you have any advice about how they might sort of progress things and take things further I think, one be patient and two there are no certainties in scotch whiskey but there can be some wonderful surprises yeah that's definitely good advice and the last inevitable question which is this you get the chance now to pick any whiskey and any moment as well, which could be a time, a place, company, whatever you like. Um, what would it be? What's the Desert I mean, Island drama? Right now, it would be Glenallachy, 21-year-old, batch two. And it would be in Taipei City. And it would be in the company of Richard Patterson and Andrew Simington. That sounds like quite a good party. That would be uncontrollable. <laughs> in the best possible way Billy it's been really great talking to you today so thanks so much for taking the time uh, it's been great fun very much appreciated thanks okay thanks very much if you enjoyed hearing from Billy and would like to know more about the Glenallachy Distillery Tours and Whiskies visit their dedicated page on the distillerytours.scot website and click on the book now button to join one of their exciting whisky experiences and tastings. It's a great time to visit, as the Glenallachy Distillery has just been crowned as Visitor Attraction of the Year 2022 in the Icons of Whisky Awards. Distillerytours.scot has every whisky distillery visitor centre in one place. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, or sign up for our Distillery and Whisky News monthly email to hear the podcast first at distillerytours.scot slash sign up. In the meantime, look out for our May podcast when we'll be visiting another of Scotland's great whisky distilleries. See you next time.